you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Calling all men. When was the last time you had a really good cry? A recent survey found that women cry on average five times a month, while men cry on average only once a month. Studies have shown that crying can support your mental, your physical, and your emotional health. I'm Radhi Devlukia, and on my podcast, A Really Good Cry, we embrace the real, the messy, and the beautiful. Listen to A Really Good Cry on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Pro Football Hall of Fame journalist Andrea Kramer, and welcome to NFL Films Tales from the Vault. In this weekly podcast, you'll get to hear for the first time raw, unedited conversations between Steve Sable and some of the greatest figures to play and coach pro football. Now, when I started my career as NFL Films' first female producer, Steve was my boss and mentor, and I learned the art of interviewing from him. Over his five decades at NFL Films, the men who made the game, as Steve liked to call them, sat down with him because of the trust and respect they had for Steve. And as you'll hear, he would ask them anything. So think of the show as a time capsule, taking you to a specific period in a player or coach's career. It's time to go inside the vault of NFL Films. And in case you were wondering, it's not an exaggeration, it's literally a fireproof vault with over 50,000 cans of film. That's 333,000 football fields worth of film for those of you scoring at home. Our weekly journey through NFL history kicks off with head coach Andy Reid. When Steve visited Andy Reid in 2010 in his suburban Philadelphia home, where he lived with his wife Tammy and their five kids, Andy wasn't yet a Super Bowl champion. And Patrick Mahomes, he was a freshman in high school. When this interview was recorded, Reid had just completed his 11th season in Philadelphia and was the most successful coach the Eagles ever had. But Reid was approaching a crossroads in his career. He was just two months removed from trading the winningest quarterback in franchise history, Donovan McNabb, to Washington. Andy shares with Steve what went into that decision, as well as how struggles in his personal life affected and guided some of his decisions as a coach. What you'll hear today is not Andy Reid's Super Bowl winning guru, but Andy Reid, age 52, a man who'd found himself but hadn't yet found a championship. So remember that great sportscaster, Warner Wolf? He used to say, let's go to the videotape. Well, I say, let's go to the vault. Here's Steve Sable and Andy Reid. I got like 20 questions. That uh, A lot of it's just going to be, uh, I just want to talk to you about coaching. And um, there's a couple quotes that I have from other coaches that I just wanted you to, to react to, you know. We all set? Yes, we all. all right. You know, when I'm walking around this house, there's so many 
you know, tchotchkes and trinkets and stuff here. What, what's your most prized possession in this whole house? I know, you know, Bill Parcells always had the, had the um, elephants and stuff, but I'm looking with all the quilts. And is this all Tammy? This is. <laughs> I, I'm, I let you off the hook no, there. I'm, I'm just renting here. So I, I've got a little cubby hole over in yeah. the corner here, office, and uh, you know, I've got a little baseball collection that I, I kind of cherish. And, yeah. um, but there's, um, most of my things are actually at the office. And so, really? yeah, but that baseball collection and, and then some of the awards are, are, mm-hmm. are great. And uh, the thing you probably cherish most is your family. So mm-hmm. I, I cherish the people that are in the house yeah. as opposed to all the little trinkets in the house. But, you know, there's some neat things. I've got a couple of paintings of my father painted that are close to my heart. So Your dad was an artist, right? That he, Yeah, my dad was an artist. And, uh, and I was able, you know, artists are, <clears throat> they're a little, you know this. <laughs> <laughs> artists are, they're out of the box thinkers, man. Right. And so... Uh, with that, he had a big heart, and he, he would paint something up, and he would give it away, or he'd sell it. And mm-hmm. uh, but I was able to, my brother and I were able to sneak a couple things from him, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's a, they're great, great things to have in the house, and, and to pass down, you know, through the through the years to the family. We a uh, long time ago, we did an interview with Bear Bryant. We were, I was in the locker room with him, and he had a shirt on, and he had a hole in the shirt, and you know, I said, Coach Bryant, I. Actually, I didn't know how to ask it, but I said, you had a, you'd think you could, University of Alabama could do a little better than that. And he said, no, he says, I, I put that hole in my shirt purposely because it reminds me of where I've come from. Is there anything like that that, that, that you've got maybe in your office or here that, that, that is a reminder of how far that you've come? Well, I've got everything from high school. My yeah. my wife, uh, I get my mom kept it, and then my wife took it yeah. after my mom passed away, and and so you know we've got a little bit of the high school stuff and the junior high school mm-hmm. things, and and that that was a great upbringing uh, where I grew up in Los Angeles. So why is that? Well, it was uh, I grew up in a multiracial mm-hmm. area, and so uh, right below Dodger Stadium, I got to uh, be around all different kinds yeah. of people. Saw the good in everybody, mm-hmm. um, and and understood that. Whether it didn't matter the religion, the faith, the creed, it didn't matter. These were good people, and we all joined together. And, and then mm-hmm. I ended up going to to Brigham Young University. And if I had to do it all over again, I'd go to Brigham Young University. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was a life changing experience. My my playing career was I, I got the opportunity I got was I had a chance to play every position. I was like the John Havlicek of the offensive line. I got to play every position. And uh, um, loved every minute of it. I, I played for two seasons. Uh, did you realize at that point that you wanted to be a coach? Or did you think that maybe you could play in the NFL? No, or? actually, I, I was kind of heading towards uh, my my mother was a doctor. And so I was I, I was thinking about going into medical school. So I, I'd set everything up where I could do that. And uh, Lavelle Edwards was my head football coach. And during my senior year, he said, have you ever thought about going into coaching? And I said, well, I really, you know, I hadn't thought about that. He goes, you know, I think you'd be pretty good at that. You might want to look at it. So I remember calling my parents and going, hey, you know what? Um, I might switch my major here and go into, go into coaching. And I remember, <laughs> I remember my, my mom going, my mom and dad were both on the phone. My, my dad, he, he was cool with it. My, my mom goes, well, you know, it's not like jail. You can always get out. <laughs> <laughs> now, Bill Parcells. He, he was telling me, he said, talking about head coaching, he said, 90% of your time is spent being disappointed. 
and not meeting your expectations. Is that just him or, or could you say that about all, all coaches? I mean, that's a pretty bleak assessment of your profession if you're saying 90% of the time you're going to be disappointed. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't think of it that way. Now, look, you're talking about one of the all-time great coaches right. and a very good friend of mine. Yeah. So I, I, uh, the way I look at it is I, I, I kind of take the other approach maybe and I, I say I'm a, one of the luckiest guys in the world to be doing what I'm doing. I mean, I'm one of 32 people in the whole world that gets coached in the National Football League. And that's why I wake up, man. I wake up and I'm fired up. Every day is a new day. And uh, uh, through thick and thin, and we've had our trials and tribulations on the field and off the field as a family, as, as a team. And I just, you keep working through it. And listen, there are highs and lows in every everybody's life. Um, and, and you, you kind of keep your faith and you keep pushing and, and normally good things happen. So that's that's kind of the approach I've taken. I've taken that with my players, with the coaches, and with my family. Now, you just talked about highs and lows, and I was just looking at your record. Five NFC Championship games, and only Bill Belichick has a better winning percentage than you do. Only Jeff Fisher has longer tenure than you. And we're talking about highs and lows. If I wanted to take one play or one game from your career here with the Eagles and put it in a time capsule. And 100 years from now, somebody wanted to know something about Andy Reid as a coach. What would you want them to see in that in that time capsule? Well, I'd probably take that second season when you go from 5-11 and 11 to 11-5 11 and five, and the way the players and coaches didn't give up hope after that first year. We had a lot of veteran players on that team. Very easily they could have gone, you know what, this young guy right here? This young chubby redhead, he's out of his mind. And, but they didn't. They all rallied in. They bought in the Troy Vincent. All these guys bought in. They bought into Donovan. They bought into Andy. And, and uh, you know, we went on to change that thing around. So that whole season, I think, was a, a phenomenal, uh, just a phenomenal thing, at least in my, my heart it is. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is the NFC Championship game that we won to put us in the Super Bowl. Standing in Lincoln Financial Field, it's cold. I've got like a Gatorade <laughs> bath on me that's frozen. It's so cold that the Gatorade bath froze. I'm sitting there and the fans, they wouldn't leave. They were out of their mind. And that that, that was a great that was a great feeling. Yeah. Um, let's switch it around to the other thing, that the, the other, the valley, where a lot of coaches will say that, that you learn from defeat, that, that what, defeat has had the most profound effect on you as a coach? I think the ones that make you the strongest is you losing that NFC championship game, uh, especially as many times as we have. That, that's, uh, that makes you strong. Now, it also makes your drive even greater to get to that, that Super Bowl and to win the Super Bowl. So uh, you, you probably put those games along with, uh, um, you know, the the loss in the Super Bowl that, that drive you to that ultimate thing, which mm-hmm. is winning the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. And I think as coaches in the National Football League, and I would put this in the 100% mark, we are all striving to do that with our football team. I think every player in the National Football League is striving to go get that ring. And uh, those games right there, those five games, those uh, they, uh, they're the ones that probably have the most profound impact on me. As a coach, what are you what are you afraid of? As a coach, I mean, there there must be some fear every week that that the same thing that must come back, or is it is it different each week? Uh, you know, I, I remember my first year, and we weren't very good, 
I think we went either four or five games of just getting our tail kicked before mm-hmm. anything positive happened. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in my office and I didn't want to come out. I didn't want to see the coaches. I didn't want to see the players. And I surely didn't want to drive home, especially when those flyer games would let out next to the vet and they'd be saying, hey, you know, you, you need to get your fat butt back to Green Bay. You know, one of those deals, literally. And uh, and so uh, I'm, I was kind of hiding out and, and I got a phone call from Parcells, actually. And he go. He had told me this when we played him in the preseason. He said, "Listen, you are in the roughest place in the National Football League." He says, "the The fans are passionate, and the media they want to rip your head off." And I've coached at both New York teams. I've coached at New England. You're in a rough spot. He says, "We all need somebody to talk to." Understand that now. You're a new head coach. We all need somebody to talk to. You make sure you call me. If things aren't going good and they're not going to go very good because you don't have a very good football team. And I said, well, I'm going to show you. You know, I got that fifth game. I didn't call anybody, man. I was like hiding under the desk. And he calls me and he goes, hey, listen, you SOB. <laughs> you think you're John Wayne, don't you? And he says, I told you, we all need somebody to talk to. Now, you pull, he says, you're hiding right now, aren't you? I said, I'm absolutely hiding, man. That door is closed, locked, and I'm, I'm in my office, and I don't want to come out. And he says, hey, stand tall and get going. You know, and so that's a— uh, You know, when you mentioned that, uh, we had Parcells mic'd during that conversation. Of course Steve remembered Parcells was mic'd during that conversation. It was a preseason game in 1999 between the Jets and the Eagles. Now, I, I got to tell you, Steve had an incredible memory for shots, for wires. He was literally a walking NFL films encyclopedia. And as we're about to hear, Parcells did not exactly mince words talking about the Philly fans. Well, I'm going to tell you, you're coaching in the toughest town in the NFL. No, I know. I heard you. It's not close for a second. 81, they blew, blew Santa Claus. No, I know. You were there. That's the truth. I was there. If you ever need anybody to talk to, just call me up. I might. Right, just do it. You just do it. I'm not, yeah. hey, and we all need that. You think I don't need somebody? And so, uh, you know, he, he ended up calling me and kind of uh, getting me, get me out of my funk there. When we come back, Andy and Steve talk about that decision to trade Donovan McNabb and an indelible story about Reed and the Philly faithful. And remember that word indelible because it's going to have a literal meaning. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Calling all men. When was the last time you had a really good cry? A recent survey found that women cry on average five times a month, while men cry on average only once a month. Studies have shown that crying can support your mental, your physical, and your emotional health. I'm Radhi Devlukia, and on my podcast, A Really Good Cry, we push against typical societal norms. We embrace the real, the messy, and the beautiful, providing a space for raw, unfiltered conversations that celebrate vulnerability and allow you to tune in, to share, connect, and find comfort together. Our tears come as a way to let us release what we can't hold anymore. I trust that no one's ever going to find out 
those deepest, darkest secrets. Yeah, it's been a hard day. She walks out, and this is what she looks like. Oh my gosh! Give her an Oscar! <laughs> Listen to A Really Good Cry with me, Radhi Devlukia, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Tales from the Vault. So, full disclosure, I grew up in Philadelphia, and I sat in the stands at the vet and the link, and I heard the boo birds... And no, I'll never admit if I was one of them. But look, the fans are tough, but knowledgeable. And Andy Reid had a love-hate relationship with them. But the story you're about to hear gives you some insight into just how much Reid appreciated the passion of the Philly faithful. You mentioned the fans here, which are which is an interesting thing. And what's what's one of the strangest requests that you can think of a of a fan with an autograph or or a favor or something to ask you. To, can you think of one thing that really stands out as a... Well, I mean, I, I can think of one. A couple of years ago at my radio show, um, I had a gal come in. She had a tank top on, and, you know, she removed the tank top and wanted me to sign. I just said, listen, I'm, I, I can't, you know, I obviously can't. Can you put that back on, please? And, and really, before before I could even get the whole sentence out, Butch Butch Yannico, my chief of security, was right there. Hey, get over here. What are you doing? You know, coach can't do that. You know, one of those deals. So uh, that's probably the most bizarre uh, of the autographs. So. Wasn't there a guy that asked you to sign his back? And, and Well, no, he did. Yeah, there, there was a guy that came in, and he's a husky guy, nice big broad back. Yeah. And he goes, hey, coach, uh, can you sign my back? So I go, um, no problem. He takes his shirt off. He, he it, wanted you to sign his, his back. His back. Yeah. So he takes his shirt off. And here, here's Lincoln Financial Field, Donovan McNabb yeah. throwing the ball. And then he has, uh, you know, he has myself there. I believe, yeah. and a couple of the other players, Dawkins and, and so on. All tattooed on his back? All tattooed on his back. And he goes, you sign here, right here, and uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this. So I took a Sharpie, I signed it. He goes, I'm going to take this now, I'm going down to the tattoo shop, and I'm going to tattoo your name on my back, autographed on my back. And I'm going, you know what? You are one loyal son of a gun <laughs> right there now, dude. Now, you, you mentioned Donovan, and it, it's interesting to me that there's there's qualities in other businesses that are valued like loyalty, fidelity, constancy, but yet in your business now those qualities that in other businesses are cherished might impede the the growth or the or, or your progress. Is that a, a tough thing to to deal with in that situation? Where and I and I guess maybe that comes back to to someone like Donovan who you were you were tethered to for so long who's so loyal and everything, and then there comes a time where the well, loyal... I, yeah, I think it's like any other business. There, there, there's a money factor that comes in. In this profession, more so than being a lawyer or a doctor, there's an age factor that comes in where a doctor at 65 or a lawyer at 65 says, listen, it's time to go. As a football player, you reach a certain age, and now you got to go. Even though your mind's sharp and your body still might have a couple, two, three years mm -hmm. left in it, that's something that constitutes change. In particular, in our situation here, where we had three quarterbacks and a young kid that we had drafted uh, that all had one year left on their contract. Mm -hmm. So now something's got to go. And, and uh, as strong as my relationship is with Donovan and as, and as good of friends as we are, 
We both understand that all of us are just kind of renting space in the National Football League. So I know my time's going to come. Donovan knew his time was going to come. And uh, we take that understanding. We don't let that affect our, our friendship or relationship. We just kind of understand how that thing works. Do you remember what your conversation with, with Donovan? That must have been a really, a really tough. Did you know that, did you both know, well, this time has come and, and when you sat down to just say, Donovan, we're going to trade you. What, what was that? What was that like? That must have been a very difficult. Well, you know, we met uh, after the season, and we we knew, really, we knew the season before um, that when a de- when you're going in your last year, of your deal, that's that's going to be a rocky road, mm-hmm. and so there are no guarantees in the National Football. Mm-hmm. You get to that last year, man. It's a um, or you have one year left. There, there's just not a lot of job security there. So he knew that coming into the last year. And uh, and so he put it out of the back of his mind. I put it out of the back of my mind. We went and did business and had a successful season. Um, at the end of the season, we both kind of knew that the next few months were going to be up and down, that there could be some change. Maybe maybe him, maybe one of the other guys, but you know, it, it wasn't just like the other years where he's here. Mm-hmm. That's not what it was. We talked as the process went on and mm-hmm. it, it didn't end as a bad divorce. That's not mm-hmm. what it is. I mean, we still talk and mm-hmm. communicate. And, mm-hmm. um, so I, I, mm-hmm. it, it's not a, it's not where I hate Donovan. Donovan hates mm-hmm. me. We're still good friends. So, uh, but most of all, I, I, you know, I, I've got to look at what happens with the Philadelphia Eagles and, and what we can, if, if I've got to get, uh, you know, get rid of Donovan here, which, I, you know, this is a joint effort. This isn't uh, the right. front office telling me this. This is my final decision. Uh, that was it. Nobody else's decision. That was my my decision. But if we're going to do that, I want to make sure we're compensated the proper way. And w- that was the best compensation. When you're talking about your players and how long you've been with the team, uh, when Lombardi retired, I did an interview with him. And uh, I asked him about, you know, why he was going to retire and if he was if he was tired. He says, no, he says, I, I still want to coach, but I've been with this team so long, I can't motivate these players anymore. They've heard everything I had to say. I still want to coach, but I can't coach these players anymore. Do you get to the point where you've been here a long time? Do you worry about the players tuning you out at this point that, that, Geez, we've heard this from Coach Reed before. We've seen this. It, is there a concern that you could go stale? Well, there, there are a couple of diff- different things that are now that weren't then uh, with Coach Lombardi. The difference today, I think, is there's so much change in the National Football League. It's like college. It's a four-year program. Boom, mm. guys are gone. Or they reach 30. Boom, they're gone. You look at his teams, they, they were older oh, teams, yeah. more mature teams. They all teams. stayed together. They all stayed together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we, we've got this constant change, and—, and uh, I have a little saying, and I say it to the coaches and the players, that I bring a three-by-five card into every meeting. If I can't get it on that three-by-five card, you're not hearing it. So my team meetings are like that. I don't spend a lot of time because those players, they don't want to hear it all. They're going to turn you off. The attention span of a National Football League football player is 15 minutes. So you can be the greatest lecturer in the world. Uh, You can have the longest meetings in the world. They are turning it off, and they're on to something else. What they want to do is play football. They want you to give them the information, let them have 
coaching points that make them the greatest possible player that they can be and then go play the game. And so that's what I do. Are you aware of this new brain science called neuroplastics? Have you heard of anything about this? I, I've heard it. I haven't studied it. All, right. All right. That term refers to the, the brain's recently discovered ability to change its structure and its function. Now, I got to jump in here and pull back the curtain on just how brilliant an interviewer Steve was. Only Steve Sable could ask a question about neuroplastics, something as far afield from football as you can get, and yet still bring it back to football. This is quintessential Steve Sable. Now, meanwhile, back to the question about neuroplastics. Now, how would you want to alter a football player's brain if you, if this neuroplastics is true to make him a better player? I'd want them all to love football, number one. If they all love to play the game and there's no other ulterior motives there, I love to play the game, then they're going to do whatever you tell them to do and they're going to work as hard as they can work for as many years as they can work. And the rest takes care of itself. Have you actually coached players that don't love the game? To me, well, Andy, this game is so tough and so demanding. How in the hell can a guy play it and not love it? I, I, well, this is what I do. I tell, I, there are certain guys that love to play the game. There are certain guys that kind of like to play the game. There are certain guys that love to play the game. Those are the guys I want. And I tell our scouts that. When people say, listen, you went to championship games with Todd Pinkston and James Thrash and, and those okay, maybe they weren't the best wide receiver in that, but those guys love to play the game. Is that what attracted you to T.O.? When you talk about people, a player that loves to play the yeah, game? Yeah, T.O. loves to play the game. He keeps his nose clean off of the field, and he loves to play the game. Now, were there other things there? There were some other things there, but we dealt with those as they came, and then, listen, every place isn't for everybody. So we reached a point where uh, our place wasn't the right place, but there could be another place for him. If... You had a spy that you could put into your upcoming opponent's facility. And you could ask him any question about the upcoming game, and he would give you the answer. What would be the questions that you would ask him? Things that you would want to know about your upcoming opponent. I mean, and this, this is a, a spy that you've, you've got, and, and he's going to be able to answer anything you want. There's got to be sure, one, no. one or two really... Yeah, I would like to know who's got the big heart. Some guys... For a few plays in a game, they're tough. But if you keep pounding them, they're going to quit. And I want to know those guys. I want to know the weakness because this is all about matchups, strengths, and weaknesses. You give me the, you give me some of those weaknesses, and I'll exploit them. Every coach seems to have his own slogan or a catchphrase that he calls on to inspire himself, and maybe inspire his team. What's yours? Dominate. I don't have a lot of uh, a lot of that stuff, but I want to dominate. I want to dominate. I want my staff to dominate. I want my players to dominate. I want to dominate. Another thing that I've heard coaches say, and this this comes from uh, from Bill Walsh, who said that that in order to be successful as a head coach, you have to have an understanding of your own shortcomings, your own failings, and so. That's important for you to be successful. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I, I think you do. And then I think you need to surround yourself. Th this is how we've, we've kind of based our, our philosophy with the Eagles is 
you have strengths and you have weaknesses. I have strengths and I have weaknesses. So as opposed to me hammering you on your weaknesses, I'm going to take my strengths and let them cover up your weaknesses. I want your strengths to cover up my weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And then we are rolling. We're going to go kick your tail. Mm -hmm. We're not going to hammer anybody's weakness. That's not what we're going to do. And then we expect you as a good person to work on those weaknesses and try to turn them into a strength. So that we live off of that. So with shortcomings, I'm going to surround myself with people. I know my shortcomings. What, I, are, I know what, my, are, what are they? Well, I can't tell you that, but no. I mean, you know, <laughs> I know my weaknesses. And so I'm when I go out and I'm hiring, I'm going to try to hire people that I know are potentially better than me and that can also cover up those weaknesses. Won't what, what are they going to cover up? I'm going to hang on this till I get you. Won't dwell to on my weakness. Yeah. Well, eating's one of them. <laughs> well, that's an easy answer, though. No, no, we want, now, there's got to be something you can... That, that, that you could tell me when you're talking about a, about a weakness? Um, could, you want me to make a suggestion here? Yeah, I'll make All a right. suggestion. People have said that, and this is a, a, a military saying, that no um, uh, plan survives uh, first attack by the, by the enemy. And people have said Andy is very set in his play calling and he'll stay with that game plan no matter what. Would you agree? Well, I, I think the game is full of adjustments. Mm -hmm. So you come in with a game plan, but it's a chess match. That other team, there has to be flexibility within the game plan because that other team is going to be doing things that you didn't quite suspect. They're going to have five things out of 20 that they're going to show you that are new. And if those five things work, they're going to those five things. And if you can't make the adjustment, you're going to get your tail kicked. So you have to have flexibility within the game plan. So I wouldn't say that's true. Mm -hmm. you, you feel you do have flexibility with the game plan? We do have flexibility, okay. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I keep flexible people around me. Is that what you're looking for? Yeah, all right. <laughs> I'm going to go, go at this a different way. There's another, here's a quote. All right. Um, there is a foolish corner in the brain of the wisest man. Can you think back now in your career, maybe in your biggest blunder? My biggest blunder? blunder. Um, uh, maybe it yeah, was a, I, a question of personnel or a, a play call or something, but as detail-oriented as you are, they're... Yeah. they're well, they're, I, I can give you a few personnel ones. I, I mean, uh -huh. they're, they're okay. it, you know, you're, you're going into this thing shooting 50%. So I get sold on somebody, and, um, you know, we mentioned we mentioned Tio. That, that was a great idea that it ended up failing in the long haul. But it got you to the Super Bowl. That's right. right. Yeah, the, the got me. so... Those kind of things, this, this is where I don't get into these quotes, is uh, number one, I've got a short memory, which I think is very important in the National Football yeah. League. Second thing is I, I hammer myself and learn from my mistakes. I'm good at that. I make mistakes like everybody else, but I'm going to try to find that mistake and I'm going to hammer it out where that doesn't happen again. And then I don't Do you have admit to, that I, mistake, Andy, when that mistake is made? Well, I do it. Yeah, I do it at every press conference. We'll get to so, that in a minute. So I, um, I don't... I don't hide that. We're not perfect. I understand that. But I, if I make a mistake, I'm going to go back and I'm not going to let that mistake die. I'm going to make sure that I hammer it out and get it right, try to better the wrong. And then I can forget about it. And you've got to, in this league, you have to have a short memory. If you don't, you're going to be in the nuthouse. You're going to drive yourself crazy. So there isn't, 
one mistake that you can think of right now because you've just flushed it out of your system altogether? I've tried to flush it out, yeah. 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 I don't like bringing those back up. When we come back, Steve and Andy talk about another controversial decision, bringing Michael Vick to the Eagles and how the events in Reed's personal life played a key role in that. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Calling all men. When was the last time you had a really good cry? A recent survey found that women cry on average five times a month, while men cry on average only once a month. Studies have shown that crying can support your mental, your physical, and your emotional health. I'm Radhi Devlukia, and on my podcast, A Really Good Cry, we push against typical societal norms. We embrace the real, the messy, and the beautiful, providing a space for raw, unfiltered conversations that celebrate vulnerability and allow you to tune in, to share, connect, and find comfort together. Our tears come as a way to let us release what we can't hold anymore. I trust that no one's ever going to find out those deepest, darkest secrets. It's been a hard day. She walks out, and this is what she looks like. Oh my gosh, give her an Oscar. <laughs> Listen to A Really Good Cry with me, Radhi Devlukia, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Tales from the Vault. When the Eagles signed Michael Vick in the summer of 2009, it was big news. No one knew if the former Pro Bowl quarterback would play in the NFL again, after serving 21 months in a federal prison for his role in a dogfighting ring. But in order to understand Reed's decision and the personal and painful nature of it, I need to give you a timeline of events that led up to the Vic signing. In 2007, at the same time Vic was serving his time in prison, two of Andy's sons, Garrett and Britt, were also serving time in jail for a variety of drug and gun-related offenses. The idea of being in prison and then coming out and being given a second chance, that was really fresh and real for Andy Reid. So when Vic was released in May of 2009, Reid convinced owner Jeffrey Lurie to give the quarterback a second chance. All right. Um, I wanted to, after T.O., then with all the, the good and the bad that happened, then you went with, with uh, Michael Vick. What was your thinking with that, with bringing Michael Vick in? Well, this is what I, this is what I thought with Michael. I, I I knew Michael was a a good person in a bad situation. At heart, he's a good person, and I, I think that's important. Uh, I, I I brought him in because he, he's a good football player. But there there were some underlying things to this. I, I I thought that that with Michael's situation, he was going through the same situation my boys were going through at the same time. He kind of got out at the same time as my oldest son got out. And uh, my second son was now out, and I was able to kind of quiz him on things. On, uh, um, and then I had spent every— Quiz your son. Quiz my second son mm-hmm. on—, on I, I could see him going through the process that he was going through, and then I could ask him questions on what I thought Michael might be going through. So, uh, and I had sat every Thursday— at 
the different jails that, that or prisons that the, the boys were at. So I had a feel, you could sit there and you could kind of sense things. And, and the thing that I got out of that was that these guys that are incarcerated, they go kind of through three phases. The, the first phase is, I didn't do anything. It's not my fault. The second phase they hit is, man, I screwed up. I did do this. I goofed. The third phase is, I goofed up, and this ain't never, never happening again. Now, not all of them reach that phase. And you can sit there in a, a prison, and you can kind of see, and I, I talked to enough of the, the guys, mm-hmm. you, you can see the ones that you go, this guy might end up coming back here. Mm-hmm. To prison. To prison. He might end up coming back here. And then there are other ones you go, you know what? That guy's going to get out, and he, he's going to smoke it here, man. He, he is, he's going to make it. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, with that, I, I, I looked at Michael. The other thing that, that when they come out, and I noticed this with my, my boys, is they have to build like a resume. So when they come out of prison, as much as they want to make it, and, uh, you know, I, I thought my boys had kind of reached that, that third phase and uh, they, they wanted to do right. They wanted to right the wrong. They were in the public eye. It was a tough situation. Um, when they left the prison... They were nervous wrecks. They were scared to death. It was like deer in the headlights look when they stepped out. Because all of a sudden we're back in the real world and how are you going to accept me? Mm-hmm. And I remember my second son going for his uh, uh, job interview. Mm-hmm. And his first job interview. And he was like sweating just profusely, just, mm-hmm. just from anxiety, the nerves mm-hmm. of how that person mm-hmm. is, how is this person going to hire me? Right. And then mm-hmm. the person did. They, they ended up hiring him. He got the job? He got the job mm-hmm. with, with a great uh, great family um, up at Carlino's. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> good For restaurant. dad, there were some ulterior motives because that, that place there. Now, you want a good lasagna? <laughs> right there, baby. So... So he he went. So what they end up doing is they have to build this resume, and you see this like uh, this sheepish, just uh, uh, very uh, unsure, insecure person um, that wants to do right. You see them kind of grow if they get around the right people. They kind of grow mm-hmm. into normal life. Mm-hmm. So, but they have to build that resume. Mm-hmm. So it's no different with Michael. Michael so- goes in. He, he's in he's in the public eye. Mm-hmm. He comes out. He's scared to death, man. I mean, mm-hmm. he's scared to you, death. You could see that when, when yeah, he's when scared you... to death. And I had talked to the commissioner. I had talked to Tony. He was scared to death. Now, when Michael got out, that a lot of head coaches were going to run to their owners and go, "Listen, I, you know, I want this guy. He's a pretty good player." Mm-hmm. And I think that's what happened. I think, and maybe even before he got out, they they had a little bit of a plan. And these owners are going to the, the owners are going to go listen now. Mm-hmm. This is a pretty serious deal. I mean, this guy. Th- this was a. This was not a good deal that he that he went through, and um, and then back the coach off, and then basically say no. Mm-hmm. I think that took place. I kind of let it go. I let him. I let him build his own resume. So he went through the process of jobs. He went through the public part of it of going out and mm-hmm. giving back to the community, giving talks to schools, and mm-hmm. you know joining the different organizations, uh, mm-hmm. going hand-in-hand hand with these organizations for animal rights and mm-hmm. and, and speaking a, a, about his faults. Mm-hmm. He admitted the wrong, and, um, and and it took time. So I waited till training camp before I ever went to Jeff Lurie. 
with, with uh, the thought of Michael Vick. Mm-hmm. When I went to him, I at least could go to him and say, listen, this is what he's done. <clears throat> he's, he's done this, mm-hmm. this, this, and this. He's built this resume of trying to do the right thing. Now, whether people are going to accept him or not, I can't, I can't guarantee that. But he's, he is bound and determined. He's reached that third stage. He's bound and determined to do the right thing. Uh, with the help of the commissioner and Tony Dungy, we were able to make this thing happen. Uh, but the one that made it happen the most was Michael. And sometimes, that's, uh, you know, I'm not sure that gets enough, of, enough credit for what he's done over this year, mm-hmm. both physically and mentally. And, and he's on the, he, he, he understands, he completely understands uh, mm-hmm. his situation. You were a journalism major in college, right? So uh, would you be concerned that if that was your profession right now, that you were a writer, a sports writer, and your assignment was to cover an Andy Reid press conference and to get some good, juicy bites and some really insightful information. How would you feel about that assignment? I'd feel like I was probably unemployed. (laughs) (laughs) Um. You hear this Andy Reid, the funny, introspective, self-deprecating Andy Reid? You rarely get to see that side of him. Now, I've been lucky to experience that in production meetings, but those are private. For Steve to get Andy to open up like this in public, well, compare that to the Andy Reid you hear in press conferences where boring might be a compliment. But make no mistake, he's intentionally boring. So let's not confuse the person with this very deliberate persona that Reid likes to portray to the media. Now, listen, this is how I look at those press conferences. I I look at them uh, like... The, the, the media and the fans really don't want a comedian. Now, I, listen, I can cut it with the best of them. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the fans, and the media, they really don't want a comedian really to, to, to run their football team. They like it for the immediate, but what they really want is the satisfaction of winning football games. I think the media and the fans want that. The satisfaction of winning games and then inevitably getting the Super Bowl ring. So with that, I, when I come to a press conference, I come there in a business frame of mind, I'm not going to joke around. I'm going to give you uh, something. I'm always going to tell the truth. I'm not going to, uh, to the best that I know of it, I'm not going to fabricate on it and, uh, um, and give it to you, and then you got to go from there. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to test your creativity as a writer. So I would have tested my creativity, and I thought I was a pretty creative writer. <laughs> and what's this team need to do to improve on third and short situations? Uh, we need to convert them. You know, listen, there's some good things and there's some bad things. So I'm not, It's a, it was a team effort. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, Dallas game is the Dallas game. I, mean, I think there's a, there was a contest about one of your press conferences, how many times you were going to cough, that there was actually a bet. There was a whole thing was how many, how many different. <coughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, that's a nervous cough. That, that's an in-season cough, I call it. We'll get it fixed. <clears throat> <clears throat> That's to, that's to release the pressure. See, everybody says, you know, a lot of people in high-profile jobs, they, they maintain this pressure. And if they would get one of those coughs, mm-hmm. they get rid of all the pressure. Mm-hmm. Or you could let it out the other end, too. Well, you, could, <laughs> you could do that. This one doesn't smell. <laughs> what do you think the public sense of Andy Reid is? And because most of it is through... The, this press con, not what you and I are doing, because people don't know. You say, wait a second, this guy's funny, he's witty, he's compelling, there's a lot. But if you just went by those press conferences, 
would say, wait a second, that, that's, not, that's not the guy. I know. And, and I bet you have friends that are saying, hey, you say you don't want to be a comedian, but you do have the wit to, to, to drop one or two of those one-liners, and you wonder, why not do it? Listen, you do too much of it, and then you're going to be criticized for that. But the bottom line is, give them information and enough. Now, listen, I'm trying to keep a football team together. <clears throat> I've got 65 guys that I'm trying to keep together in a tight bond. And I'm the leader of that. So they're going to kind of follow my lead. Um, nobody wants to be criticized out in public. I don't want to be criticized out in public. Now, it happens, but I surely don't want it from one of my players, and I don't want it from Jeff Lurie or Joe. I don't want that. I don't think, I don't think anybody wants that. So I'm not going to do that to the players. I'll take you. If you're one of my guys, I'm going to take you one-on-one. -on -one. I'm going to bring you in the office. I'm not going to do it on the field. I'm not going to put on a show. I'm going to take you, and I'm going to sit you down in the chair. And if I've got an issue with you, we're going to knock that issue out. I'm going to be as straightforward with you as I can. It might not be what you want to hear, but I'm going to shoot you straight. And so you have to, you've got to develop that with the player. If you want the player to follow you in, into the, uh, the battle of football, into that game, there's going to be a time in a game where that player's got the ultimate trust in you. And, and uh, you have to have the ultimate trust in him. And if you've destroyed that trust out in, in public, you can never regain that. Is this something that you developed yourself, or did you did you see another coach do do this? What you're talking about? This I think approach? it's an offensive lineman's mentality. That's what I really think it is. When you're raised as an offensive lineman or a defensive lineman, you kind of understand that that um, you take care of each other. You got to work together. You all got to dance a dance together. You got to trust the guy next to you. If you don't, you're not going to be any good. Now you're aware <laughs> that there are coaches that do the exact opposite that you do. An example here, we have Jimmy Johnson, who we always felt used the, the, the press conference and the media as a tool to send a message to his players. Mm -hmm. You're exactly the opposite. It's almost with whatever happens, you know, Andy's going to say it. Uh, we'll get it fixed. It's my fault. We'll get it fixed. It's my fault. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's... And do, you, do you sense any of the, the fans' frustration with that? When Absolutely. They, when they know, damn it, it isn't the coach's fault. Yeah. I mean, and... and but you'll never admit, you'll never uh, blame a player. Well, listen. Even when it's so th obvious. Th this is where it's my fault. It's my fault as a leader. So could I have gone back and helped that player more not to make that mistake? As a football coach, that's your challenge. We're here to be teachers. That's why we're, that's why we're in this profession. And so did I teach that guy well enough not to make that mistake? Now, is there a human error in the game? Absolutely. That's what makes it so great. Mm -hmm. So, um, but, but I'll take that. I'll take that responsibility. For what I get down the road, I'll take that responsibility. Um, <clears throat> what's the nicest thing that anybody ever said to you? Uh, my wife, when she tells me she loves me. <laughs> it's pretty good. That is. Uh, Listen, that's a good way to end it right there. Tammy and Andy have experienced such tremendous personal hardship, and getting Reed to open up about that is truly one of Steve's gifts that was on full display here. Meanwhile, two years after this interview, Reed the coach, well, he traded Philly cheesesteaks for Kansas City barbecue. Come on, you knew I had to get in a line about food here. This is Andy Reed. Well, Reed is now finally a Super Bowl champion and incredibly in his ninth season as coach of the Chiefs. 
Now, over his career, Reed has coached or developed so many great players, and you can't ask someone to pick a favorite. It's sort of like asking which of your five children do you like the best. But if you really put Reed under the microscope, he'd tell you his favorite is Brett Favre. And that's who's coming up next week. Thanks for coming with me on this maiden trip inside the NFL Films vault. Hope you'll join us again next week. I'm Andrea Kramer. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Calling all men. When was the last time you had a really good cry? A recent survey found that women cry on average five times a month, while men cry on average only once a month. Studies have shown that crying can support your mental, your physical, and your emotional health. I'm Radhi Devlukia, and on my podcast, A Really Good Cry, we embrace the real, the messy, and the beautiful. Listen to A Really Good Cry on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.